Amen. That was a fantastic special. That was fantastic. I I love that song. I love the message behind that song. I feel like I've been in those shattered pieces before, and I'm thankful the Lord didn't throw that play away. And I think that goes well with in our community how many people are thinking I'm clay and I'm useless. Let's have some compassion. Let's get going on these our, re- our outreach and our, these these ministries, and let's just show them that the Lord loves you. The Lord can put that back together. So I'm just very thankful for that. Thankful that the Lord's placed us here. And I'm looking forward to how the Lord's going to use us this year in Palm Coast. Uh, we're still in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at verses 24 to 28. So we're going to finish up Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 28. And if you're able to stand for reading God's word, please stand. God's word says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put him put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for our church. Thank you for the many blessings, Lord. Thank you for your provision. Uh, Lord, please be with us, sirs. Be with me right now, Lord. Help me, help me be that conduit, Lord. Just get me out of the way. Lord, please flow your message through me this morning, Lord. Please be with me. Please use me this morning, Lord. Please help it be about you, to honor and glorify you, Lord. Help it be your words you'd have for us this morning, Lord. And uh, just be with all parts of the message, Lord, and help it be all done to honor and glorify you. And then we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The title of our message this morning is Out with the Old and and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. Now, I was trying to think of a way to, to, to explain this this morning, and I came up with something, and I'm not even sure supplies to everyone anymore, but when you go to the movies, or when you used to go to the movies, I don't know if there's many movies to go see anymore, but imagine, picture that, when you go to movies or used to go to the movies, when you went, you're, you're sure to see little trailers or little short summations of movies of coming attractions of this is the future movies this is what you you've got to see next and sometimes those trailers if we remember they gave away too much of movies plot we already knew what was going to happen so why go see the movie um others uh uh spoiled the movie for us others teased us just enough just the right amount of information where we got excited and we couldn't wait till that movie was released so we can go see that movie in a way, you can think of the Old Covenant as God communicating to man just enough information to get man interested, to get man excited, to get men, to get men know that, yes, I can't wait for this new covenant to arrive. You can think of the Old Covenant in that way, uh, God letting us know something great is coming, uh, that this Old Covenant is foreshadowing, that's giving you some information, and those types and those pictures are just going to pale in comparison to what he is going to do for man and with man in the new covenant. God says, if you thought the old covenant was good, wait till you see what's coming. Wait till you see the new covenant. 
And guess what? This new covenant's even starring my son. He has the leading role. You, you, you can't, I cannot wait for you to experience this new covenant. So what value did the old covenant serve then? Uh, it was God's coming attractions, if you will. It was God's way of pointing man toward the new covenant to show us how much we needed the new, how much we had to look forward to the new, how much greater and grander and, and personal the new covenant would be. Now, the new covenant cleansed a true, permanent dwelling place for God. It provided a sacrifice to cover for all. And the new covenant works through a priest who bridges that gap between man and God. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants his audience to understand. Without, we don't confuse the signs and the types for the fulfillment. Uh, the, the, the new covenant is the main thing. The new covenant is what that old covenant was, was pointing us towards, to get us excited about. In the new covenant, God's son died for us. Uh, he conquered death. He conquered the devil. He lives for us. He mediates for us. Uh, to all those who accept him as their savior. So this new covenant is something to get very excited for. You need to leave that old covenant alone. We got something so exciting now, so fulfilling, so that we've longed for. And that's the new covenant. So now going back to our analogy, our movie analogy again. Once a movie debuts at the theater, uh, the trailer is not needed. You don't need to go back and watch the trailer because you have the movie. But our writer seems to be saying that his his recipients of this letter seemed like they were just stuck with the trailer. They wanted to keep watching the trailer over and over again and not watch the movie. They wanted to stay with the old covenant and not go on to the new covenant. Even the old covenant was pointing them towards the new covenant. They just wanted to stay with the Old Covenant. They didn't want to go and see this greater, grander, better, superior thing that was coming. They just wanted to replay that movie trailer of the Old Covenant over and over again. So that's why we've seen the writer of Hebrews carefully walking his audience, his readers, us, through the various elements of the New Covenant uh, so that he can compare them to the New. With each comparison, he shows from Scripture how the New Covenant is it's the best. It's the greatest. It's superior. A new covenant is so much better, so much greater, so much grander, so superior to the old that the old just pales in comparison to it. So our first point this morning is a better sacrifice. So, so far, the writer of Hebrews has covered the better priesthood and a better tabernacle and a new covenant, and now he's ready to explain the better sacrifice of the new and that better sacrifice, of course, is Christ himself. So at the end of chapter 9 here, we saw that the tabernacle of our high priest in heaven had to be prepared, uh, just like the, the earthly tabernacle was. It required a cleansing through uh, an application of blood and that sin that contaminated it. Contaminated it. We looked at last week, that was Satan's rebellion, according to Ezekiel 28. And the only way that blood could properly cleanse that heavenly tabernacle was that of Christ himself, so it needed Christ's blood. So as Christ died and he was resurrected, he brought his own eternal blood into the heavenly realm for application on the altar. And Paul sums this up also. If you want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Paul sums up this thought for us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. This, this, these verses are also talking about what we talked about last week. Now Colossians 1, starting verse 19, says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now he made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, 
By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Knows the last part of verse 20. To, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That tells us again the blood of Christ was needed to reconcile all things, even the things in heaven. And they needed that reconciling again because that sin of Satan that occurred there. Now, if you go back to our passage in Hebrews now, we're going to be flipping around in the Bible a lot this morning. Uh, mostly in the New Testament, but we've got several verses I want us to look at. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 again. Uh, we're going to read verses 24 to 26. Uh, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want us to try to imagine what's going on here. At some point following Christ's resurrection, he ascended into heaven in physical form, in human form. Uh, He entered in the heavenly tabernacle. I'll just try to picture this. What an awesome and amazing spectacle it must have been. The victorious glorified, death-conquering king returns to heaven, returns to the heavenly realm, having completed that plan of salvation, having completed the redemption uh, for man that was assigned to him by the Father. Imagine choirs of angels, all the saints that were up there that Christ led free from captivity must have rejoiced like never before. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. The scene must have been as glorious of a scene as we could possibly ever imagine because God's plan of redemption was reaching its climax. That is the moment the writer of Hebrews is describing here, the climax of the plan of redemption. Now with that in mind, let's read verses 24 to 26 again. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, the climax of redemption, nor yet that he should be off, should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood with blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At that moment, as Christ entered that tabernacle made of precious stones, brilliant shining glass and gold, he entered the Holy of Holies, the writer says. This is a place no human hand had ever touched since it was made by Christ himself, who is the maker of all things. Our earthly tabernacle, lined with gold and fine linen, was just a mere copy of this superior structure. It could not compare to the glory of that heavenly structure. And we looked at that a few weeks ago, and it was a glorious structure. And then as the Son of God returned to his heavenly home, now living in the form of a man, he entered with his own blood. So remember, no human hand had ever touched anything in that tabernacle. Now you got Christ, the Son of Man, in his human body, walking in there. And now human hands have touched those things. He entered with the nail prints on his hands. He left heaven perfect, 
He comes back perfect, but now he has nail prints in his hands. He entered with the scar in his side. He entered with the scars on his head from the crown of thorns. He entered with the markings of the cruel beating from the cat of nine tails on his back. He entered for us. The glorious pinnacle of redemption. Now, have you ever stopped to think, as he created those little babies, as he created those innocent little babies, we have uh, an example right there, innocent little baby, he knew that one day, you go, see that, see that baby over there, Gabriel? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he just perfect? You know, one day, his hands are going to drive the nails into my hand. He made another baby. Say, so see that one over there? And he's going to grow up to be big and strong. You know, I just love that little boy right there, that little baby. You know, he's going to grow up to pluck the beard out of my face. Another one. See that one over there? That's a just He's going to be a handsome man when he grows up. I, I love him so much. He's going to grow up to mock me as I walk to the cross. You see that one over there? I just love that little baby so much. He's going to grow up, and he's going to, he's going to be the one that drives the spear into my side. You see that one over there? I love him so much. He's going to be the one that strikes me with the cat of nine tails. Never stop to think of that. He knew as he created them, that one's going to do that to me. That one's going to do that to me. But I love them. I'm going to go die for them. He knew that all that. He still created them. You see that one over there? That one's going to be named Keith Sieber. He's going to really disappoint me. But I love him. I'm going to die for him. He voluntarily laid down his life for them, for me, for us, knowing what we would do, knowing how we would disappoint him. Now, keeping all that in mind, perhaps billions of angels singing in glorious song, the King of Kings has finally returned after 33 and a half years to heaven. Oh, how they've missed him. They've just missed his presence there. And now here he comes with his own precious blood. Now, how did the Lord deliver his blood into heaven? We only have to guide us that old covenant ceremony that we've looked at before. As the writer explains in verse 25, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, carrying a basin with the blood of a bull. The blood was drained from the body of the bull while at the altar and then carried into the Holy of Holies and applied to the mercy seat. Therefore, we would assume that as the Lord entered the tabernacle, some of his blood was taken at the altar. Then he himself carried it into the holy place, as the writer says. Can you just picture that? Can you just picture that? In verses 25 to 26, the writer says, Christ's application of his blood in the heavenly temple was superior to the point that it needed to only happen once. That's it. One time. That was all that's needed. Cleanse all men of all sin for all time. Unlike the priests in the Old Covenant who repeated that sacrifice daily, annually, Christ's sacrifice was a one-time event. Christ's death, the application of his blood, was a one-time event. Christ's death has that limitless power to save not just one person, but a multitude of humanity redeemed by the blood of that single act of that sacrifice. Because his act of sacrifice satisfies the Father as payment for those sins for those who believe. Paul describes this relationship in Ephesians. If you want to turn there for us, uh, for me, Ephesians chapter 1. 
We're going to look at verses 18 to 23. We're going to look at the saving power of Jesus' blood. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. God's word says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul describes the saving power of Christ's death. He asked the church to know the hope of the calling uh, received by the grace received by grace from God. Then he describes the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance for the saints. Christ's inheritance refers to his resurrected life uh, and the kingdom he rules afterward. And that glory is for us, for the saints, and for those who believe. And then after his resurrection, Christ was seated in the heavenly places following the application of his blood in the tabernacle. And as his work in the tabernacle was complete, the Lord took his seat next to the Father. And Eastern culture, a servant sitting down indicated his work was completed. And so to be seated means to be he, at servant, his work was completed. He ceased from his work, but at sitting where he sat, it's also a place of authority. But Christ demonstrating he is that servant, but he's also that authority. He's the ultimate authority. He served us, but he's also that ultimate authority. He humbles himself even in this act, sitting as a servant would when he's done, but he's also the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It's amazing. If you think about all the detail, all the meaning behind everything you read in the Bible, it's just tremendous what we can teach. You could you could spend forever, just, just all day long, 24 hours a day, studying God's word and never get everything out of it. I want you to turn with me to chapter 2 of Ephesians now. So we looked at the saving power of his blood, and now we're going to look at how we are made alive by his sacrifice. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. All those Christ and dwells are covered by his sacrifice, as Paul goes on to explain, starting in verse 7. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So the brilliance of his glory is evident, shining through the, the dark clouds of the world, uh, shining through the dark clouds of the flesh of the devil. He is not just merciful. Notice he is rich in mercy. And that word translated as rich has a sense of kindness or goodwill towards those in a miserable estate. Kindness and goodwill toward those in a miserable estate. In that context, that refers to a willingness to deal kindly with those that are guilty. And we're all guilty. Uh, God is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. Verse 4, God's mercy emanates from his love. It comes from his love. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in love. And verse 5, 
even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Prior to that regenerating power of salvation, we were dead, spiritually speaking. We were dead in our relationship with God, but even then, he quickened us together with Christ. An allusion is made to the resurrection of Christ. Though he was dead, nevertheless, God quickened him. And the word translated as quickened us together literally means make alive together. So not only have we been given new life, spiritually regenerated when we were saved, we were so regenerated along with Christ, the same power that brought him to life in his resurrection, in his resurrection, the same power that brought us to life or regenerated us. Verse 5, by grace are ye saved. The word translated as grace has that sense of goodwill, of loving kindness, of favor. Uh, perhaps the, the best definition when relating to salvation is just what we've, I think we've heard over and over again in our lives, unmerited favor, unmerited favor. It derives from God's love and just the practical outworking of that love. And someone else has come made this acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. I think that's a very good acrostic. I've heard that many times in my life. Uh, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So it is by the grace of God towards us that any of us might be saved. So what heavenly places is Paul talking about? Uh, look at verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, he's talking about us being raised together and sitting together in heavenly places. So what exactly is Paul talking about? Uh, Paul's referring to the moment Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle, uh, a holy place on our behalf, uh, to make intercession for us with his blood. And that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 9. Paul's talking about what happened, what we just studied here in Hebrews chapter 9. Also remember the Old Testament high priest, he entered the tabernacle on behalf of Israel. Uh, he represented Israel. He was their, the nation's representative, and he entered there on their behalf. So likewise, Christ is our representative. And he enters in the holy place in heaven on our behalf. Uh, as he entered, he applied his blood to the mercy seat on our behalf. He's our representative. It's by his work of sacrifice uh, that we can have that eternal life by faith in him. So we can save and raise with Christ because nothing stands in the way of our resurrection. We're, we're raised. Uh, we're going to be raised. We're raised with Christ. He conquered death on our behalf. So he assures us we will be raised. You know, we have an incredible future ahead of us if we're saved. We have an incredible future ahead of us. Ephesians 2, 7. I love this verse, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In ages to come, on out into the future, he's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The Lord, we're so undeserving. But can't, you can't even begin to fathom the plans that God has for us and Jesus has for us on into the future. The things they want to do for us and show us and, and bless us with. I mean, it, you, we can't even fathom that. We can't even think of what is in store for us in heaven and on into eternity. That love, God so loved the world, that love. I can't fathom that love. I mean, I want to do good things for my children on into the future, but I can't imagine. That's got to so pale in comparison to what God 
wants to do for us on into the future. We have a fabulous future in Christ. In the ages to come, God will display his riches of his grace to us. Blessings will come in ages to come. What a future we have in Christ. Again, if we are saved, that future is bright. If we are not saved, that future is not so bright. That brings us to verses 27 to 28 in Hebrews chapter 9. If you turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at how all men have an appointment with death. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. All men have that appointment with death. Starting verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this to judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Men are appointed once to die, and that's followed by judgment. Also mentioned here, we can see we're all going to die, except apart from uh, not dying through the rapture, we all have that appointment with death. The inevitability of judgment is also we're going to be judged. It is point of men wants to die, but after this, the judgment. So we're all going to die unless we get caught up in the rapture. We all have that judgment. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. It says, so again, that truth is driven home that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and it was superior. So we will all be judged one day, verse 27, but after this, the judgment. We will all be judged by the Lord one day. So we need to be examining ourselves and our ways. And we need to make sure we are prepared for this coming judgment. Haggai 1.5, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I the Lord search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways. If you are born again, if you are a born again believer in Christ, you will be judged according to your works for him at the judgment seat of Christ. At the Bema seat. That judgment seat is for believers only. Second uh, Corinthians 5.10, For he must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So our, our works done for Christ, are, if we're saved, we go to the judgment seat of Christ, and our works are judged there. That's the judgment we should all want to be at. There's only other one, one other judgment we can be at. And you do not want to be at the other judgment. You want to be at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the judgment you want to be at. Have your works judged, whether they be good or bad. The other judgment that will take place is called the great white throne judgment. This is for unbelievers. You turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is the judgment you do not want to be at. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read verses 11 to 15. We do not want to be at the great white throne judgment. We want to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. This is not where you want to be someday. You do not want to be at this judgment. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, according to their works. 
in the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Notice I saw the dead small and great. No matter if you're, you think you're the greatest person to ever live or you think you're the lowliest person to ever live, if you are not saved, you're going to be at the great white throne judgment. doesn't matter if you're a king, if you're a president, if you're the richest man on the planet, or if you're a poor person living someplace, if you're not saved, you're going to be at the great white throne judgment. Now, this scene is a scene of severe judgment. All unbelieving from all time will be resurrected and appear at this judgment if they are not saved, to be cast into the lake of fire, to burn in that lake of fire in torments for all eternity. John five twenty eight to 29 Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which that all in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And those of the great white throne judgment are unto the resurrection of damnation. Which judgment do you want to be at? Which judgment do you want to be at? We need to make sure we are at the judgment seat of Christ and not at the great white throne judgment. Uh, make sure you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Make sure you've acknowledged your sin, turned from it. We need to recognize Christ as our Savior. Understand that without trusting him, we will not be going to heaven. Because the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. If we do not accept that gift of eternal life, if we do not trust the Lord Jesus with our salvation, uh, we will have to answer for our own sins. We'll have to pay for our own sins, and we'll never finish paying for our own sins. Because we're not innocent. And so it, our, our payment will never be accepted. We'll pay for all into eternity in torments and hell and that, that resurrection of damnation and the lake of fire. Well, that's where we'll spend eternity. Uh, the second coming to Christ, uh, if you notice in verse 28, will be separate from sin. Hebrews 9.28, Hebrews 9.28, the second coming to Christ will be separate from sin. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So, so those who by faith have trusted Christ, we have to look forward to that blessed hope, looking forward to that second coming. And that second coming will be separate from sin. When Jesus comes the second time, it will not be to bear our sins as he did the first time. Rather, it will be bringing in the fullness of our salvation. He'll come as that conquering king. He'll, he'll come as a, a set up his kingdom. He'll come that second time separate from sin. It won't be to bear our sin. It won't be to pay for our sin. That's done. That's paid in full. That job is finished. He's coming as that conquering king to set up his eternal or his thousand year reign in his eternal kingdom. He's coming the second time without sin. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. So if you'll turn me to John chapter 10, we'll start wrapping up this morning. John chapter 10, we're going to verses 14 to 18. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18. God's word says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. 
Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus, as our good shepherd, came to earth on a mission. He came to earth on a rescue mission to rescue his sheep, rescue those the Father had given him. He came to die for us. He came to pay sin's penalty for us. He came so that we would not have to pay that penalty of sin for our own sins for all eternity. He came because he knew his shed blood and death would pay the penalty for our sin. He came to shed his blood and die so we could then take so he could then take that precious blood to the heavenly holy holies and apply it in our behalf and our sin debt would be paid. God's plan of rescue, his plan of salvation hinged on the great shepherd laying down his life for his own. Both those in the fold of Israel, and I like how he says, and those of another fold, could be the Gentiles. I love that. I love how Jesus words everything. Everything's so perfect. Uh, verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. The Father loves the Son, because the Son is willing to lay down his life for us. He lays down his life, intending to live again. Uh, notice verse 17 says, That I might take it again. So the Son will take up his life. He lays down his life voluntarily, and he takes it up again. Verse 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus laid down his life. They thought they killed him. They didn't kill him. Jesus laid down his life, and then he took it up again three days later. They didn't kill him. He laid down his life, and he took it up again three days later. The Father was prepared to accept the Son's death as that suitable payment for our sins. Uh, we who are Christ's sheep, we've accepted that payment on our behalf. But if you're not Christ's sheep, that means you have not accepted that payment on his behalf. That means you're not going to that judgment seat of Christ one day. You're going to the great white throne judgment. You need to make sure we're going to the right judgment. It's not something we should take for granted. It's not something that we should assume we got to make sure, 100% sure, that we are saved and we're on our way to heaven. We do not want to go to that other judgment. So now Christ has met that payment requirement of the Father. Uh, he can return, the writer says, without respect of judgment to his sheep. We can look forward to the return of Christ without fear of judgment because we know the Father has already been satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. We've been personally accepted uh, and by that sacrificial payment if we've personally accepted Christ as our Savior. So the requirement that our sin be followed by judgment has been taken care of. It's been met. Our sin was followed by judgment. Jesus took that judgment on our behalf. So our sin was followed by judgment. If we're saved, we do not have to meet that requirement. If we're saved, we do not have to pay that penalty for our sins. All those who die in their own sins will not look forward to the day he puts his, all of his enemies under his footstool or all his enemies under his feet because they'll be one of them. They'll be one of them. Instead, they'll be among those enemies. They'll be at that great white throne judgment. We just need to make sure that we're saved. If you have any doubt, get that settled this morning. We need to make sure we're saved. But this passage in Hebrews, just imagining 33 and a half years, they've missed him. They've longed for him. And here he comes. Here he comes. He laid down his life. For three days, he lies in that grave. All heaven just waiting, takes his life up again, goes into heaven, the Holy of Holies, applies that blood, it is finished, 
paid in full. What a glorious scene. I hope hope we can watch that, a replay of that somehow. I hope the Lord lets us see that. I'm pretty sure we won't have TV screens, or I hope some way we could see that and, and watch that. And what a moment. The climax of redemption. If we we rush through this passage in Hebrews, we don't even realize that's what we're talking about. The climax of redemption. The climax of redemption. Amazing. Amazing. Out with that old covenant, in with the new, right there in those few verses in Hebrews chapter 9 describes that moment. We need to make sure we're safe.